Today, a podcast where we talk about the future of tomorrow. But today, I am your host, Nash Flynn. I am here, as always, I'm trapped, please someone help me, with Andy of the Porporals Almanac. Andy, hello. Why am I not Andy of tomorrow today? Because we're doing tomorrow today. If you were going to introduce me, you'd say Nash of Death and Friends. I've never said that about you. You haven't ever said that. We've actually never said the name of my other podcast on the show. Whose fault is that? I think it's yours because you're the one that's supposed to introduce me. It's 2023. You can introduce yourself. Oh, okay. Well, I am the host of the Death and Friends podcast. One of them, I suppose. You are the host of the Poor Pearls Almanac. How are we doing today? Wonderful. Good. Good. I'm glad. I'm very happy for you. I feel like you're going to bring things down. So happy. For- no, no, I'm not this time. Everybody always expects that the guests that I have on this show are going to be sad and a bummer and about grief and death. And we do talk about it this week, but not like in, in its major forms. Like this, this talk was not really like supposed to death be. death peripheral? Yeah. Like it was not supposed to be not about death. death but I snuck it in there. You know what I mean? Like I just a little, just, I'm going to regret that noise. <laughs> You like stuck your foot in the door as it was closing on death and you're like, nah, uh Yes, let's say that that's what I meant by that noise. <laughs> let's say that. Anyway, this week I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Dr. Julie Carpenter. She is a researcher, an academic, a film theorist, and just an all-around delight. She's got a book coming out in 2023. It's called The Naked Android, Synthetic Socialness and the Human Gaze. And you can check out her TED Talk, which is called Humans Plus Robots colon dream machines she is absolutely wonderful at titling things i would also like to add that is it the humans and robots together are the dream machine like the dream team but because they're a robot it's a machine or is the robot the dream machine or is the robot the machine and the person is the dream okay 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 so i can't answer that because this is definitely something algebra she come on should let's have do this answered. well you know but i do think it is, it is all of those things. All of the above. All of those things. So It's like one of those like puzzles where it's like how many different points can this yes. corner touch and yes. it's all. It's, it's all just of them. All. It's actually the Venn diagram of those things is a circle. It's all connected, man. The universe. It's beautiful. It's like 1978 and you hit your first joint. Exactly. I actually had a super, super fun time with this conversation because it was the most fascinating thing I've ever heard in my life, to be honest with you. We talked about everything, all of the things, the entire human consciousness. It was a wonderful conversation. We talked about Y2K, which I know everybody misses deeply. Can't wait for Y3K. <laughs> Please bring it on sooner rather than later. I am very tired of this podcast. Wow. <laughs> I'm just joking. Anyway, uh, we talked about being a millennial. We talked about the rise of technology. We talked about how robots help us understand humanity. And we talked about a little bit about death. I won't lie about that. Okay. I wanted to do this introduction, and I wanted to to bring it back to us, you and me in the studio. And I want you to tell me, like, when you remembered, like, the, your first internet use. Like, walk me through, because we're, we're both millennials, so we both grew up without the internet, and then the invention of the internet, and then the advent of social media as it became. Um, so tell me about the first time you got online. So I don't remember the first time I got on the internet. Okay. That's not an auspicious start. But... But. There's a big butt here. Okay. It's a, a big, big butt. It's a big butt. <laughs> it's my favorite kind of butt. It's big. First grade, we had like one of those floppy disk computers. You oh, shove sure. the thing in. Yep. You do so, shove like, it in. Shove it right in. Sometimes it shoves back out. We have this computer. It's got the stupid game on it. Yeah. I'm six and we go up in groups to like, it's two kids at a time at the computer for some reason. So you get to name your character and they do the thing. So I named my character Poop. Yeah, you did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and like 10 seconds in the kid that i'm like with is yells to the teacher mrs so-and-so he spelled poop <laughs> so like it's it's like the third day of school mm-hmm. like i don't and i didn't go to like orientation because like my parents weren't those kinds of people they had an orientation for yeah like the grade? half day like intro like welcome to your new school blah blah because blah. i like they didn't have a kindergarten there or anything so i get sent to the principal's office I don't know where the principal's office is. So I just walked around the school for like 20 minutes and came back. And she's like, okay, is everything all set? And I was like, yep. And the day kept going on like that. And that is my first time with a computer. Wow. That is, please someone update this Wikipedia page because that's the most 
origin story I've ever heard. That, that's where it all started to go wrong. That's where it all started to go wrong. The big butt. The poop story. It's funny, though, that you say that because I have an Animal Crossing island that is called Fart. So we're just out there Tales wilding. Tales time. Yeah. I mean, I was 32 when I made that island, and you were six when you made poop. So, you know. Listen, late bloomer. It's okay. Yes. By, like, three decades. I don't remember the first time I was online. I do remember my father created my first like AOL screen name and he didn't know anything about me. He still really doesn't. And he really wanted a son. So my first, this is true, my first AIM, like in, what are they called? Screen names? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I read to reach for that. My Grandma. first AOL screen name was Bball 726 because my dad thought I liked basketball and my birthday is July 27th, but he didn't know that. So he just got <laughs> close. <laughs> yes. Uh, that sounds about so right. So it had nothing to do with me at all. I don't even B-ball. know where, where he got basketball from. I played soccer. <laughs> like. He went to some of those games. It's okay. My dad went to my basketball games. He was the guy that was like reading the newspaper at the YMCA, like his foot sticking out into the court. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to care when your kids are playing sports, I suppose. that Maybe that one's not his fault, but uh, not wow. knowing my birthday was pretty harsh. My first screen name was Philly, and then like I think my birthday or something like that, like P-H-I-L-I because I like the 76ers. Oh, wow. Uh, basketball. Yeah. Look at that. The, okay. The we, overlap's going on we here. We tied it, just, it all together. <laughs> it's just, it's beautiful, really. Cohesive themes on this podcast. That's what we're saying. We do it all. We plan these chats well in advance. This is all scripted material. I mean, how could you not think it's scripted material? Right. We're actually not even real people. This whole podcast is run by AI. In honor of our great deity, Dr. Carpenter. Dr. Julie Carpenter, thank you so much for inventing us and giving us souls, unlike the Google AI. And history. We talk about that, too. Uh, We also talk about Elon Musk. It was an absolutely fantastic conversation. I hope that before you jump in, you take a moment of silence and think about the first time you interacted with the internet. Um, And if it's a really good story, please... Go ahead and tag me on social media. I would love to know it. Do you think there's some like libertarian dad out there who's going to like give his kids their first social media handle and it's like Elon Musk rules 420? I do believe. For like a six-year-old? I do believe that happens. But you know, I want to end on this because... I really want this to be a positive, optimistic experience. And not like aliens or or robots are going to take over and kill us because we're obviously stupid. I mean, maybe that would be an optimistic choice given the current state of things. But okay, here it is. Ready? You never know the last time you're going to do something, right? You never know the last time you pick up your kid and put them down or the last time you drive past your old house, whatever. Today, as we sit here, we don't know how much longer the Twitter code will hold. So to be fair, when this actually comes out, it might have already died. Yes. So this might be a little little nugget of history. A time when we thought Musk, the Musk Tusk wouldn't fail. But it has repeatedly, <laughs> repeatedly. over and over again. Anyway, here's your moment of Zen. Please think about the Internet. I stole that from John Stewart. For the Internet. For Hashtag. the Internet. So just to get us off the ground here, um, I really, really want to talk about how you got into this field. And I know that you've answered this question a bunch of times because you started off in film theory and now you work in humans sort of versus and robots. Um, So (laughs) I want to hear you tell me again how you got here. I have to step back and say I like humans versus robots. (laughs) I, I often I don't think of it that way, but that sounds like a great like film franchise or something (laughs) versus robots. (laughs) So how did I get into it? So a hundred years ago, when I was an undergraduate, they didn't have really anything that was specific uh, in psychology or communication or even art history, which is where my interests were before that, um, about how humans specifically would interact with the emerging technologies. But one school that they had that interested me was film theory, right? And this was as the internet was sort of emerging. I mean, we had just all gotten like emails on campus, right, that weren't even widely used yet. So of course, there wasn't a specific field in it. And I wasn't sure I knew as a movie lover, that film theory would hold my interest as an undergraduate, right, and would be fascinating to me. So 
uh, the short version of this is that when you think about what film theory is, which is sort of like dissecting and taking close cultural looks at who is doing the writing and the directing and the editing of films, who decides what stories get to be told, what genres are popular, what ones blow up existing uh, paradigms, you know, and why, what messages does the audience take away, what messages do different audiences take away, you know, how are things culturally embedded, and when you think about all of these questions that media theory delves into, you can see sort of how, um, that informed one of my first jobs after college, which was um, in communications that turned into web development, like a lot of jobs did then. If you weren't afraid to learn to code, and I already had some background in it because I was lucky enough to have early home computers and things like that. If you were brave enough at work to raise your hand and say, I, I don't mind doing the web stuff, then all of a sudden you were the web admin. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> That's really how I started with that. And from doing the back end stuff, and I'm not going to claim to be any great engineer or web developer because this was 100 years ago, right? We're still talking. Certainly, this was a time when because people were learning to adopt the web and I was initially working at the back end of it, I was dealing with the companies, individuals, the organizations, trust issues funneled through me about messaging. Like they were so embedded in the idea of print to communicate to the people, the members of their organization. Like they didn't even really get that if they, if there needed to be a correction on the web, I could do it in seconds. So if there was a mistake, it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, take the website down. You know, all our members are misinformed. You know, like they didn't, that's, we're laughing now, but people didn't understand the mechanics of the back end was really a black box. It was a mystery if you didn't know how to code, really. And that's sort of where that mystique in some ways about engineers and coding began. It was just a complete mystery to people how this happened. So those initial trust issues for me sort of start began turning the light bulb on and like, this is really powerful medium. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, you know, that you say that, you know, we're laughing at it now because yeah. in truth, you know, it's, it's 2022. I'm an adult. I grew up with technology. I could still, I still don't always trust that what I'm typing in an email gets to the person. Like, I don't understand that <laughs> yeah. process at all. And sometimes I'm like, yeah. ooh, but I also don't really understand the post office. So for me, writing it down is not better. Like, I don't <laughs> understand any of those things at all. Right. I mean, th that does come down to very nuanced things about trusting the system, mm -hmm. what feedback the medium gives you to engage you and make you trust it, right? Yeah. Like uh, if you have the ability to get a read receipt or something and even trust in yourself, right? right? Yeah. If you have a mental model of yourself, like it, the funny thing is, is like when I was at, started as an undergraduate, I did not think of myself as technical at all. So the fact that I work in technology now is hilarious, but also, uh, but I really was technical at the time. I just didn't think of myself that way. And again, I say that because I was privileged enough to have a nerd father who would spend our last penny on technology, emerging technology. Jeez, I say privileged. I don't know. It, it was a little crazy. But and so he got some of those early home computers. And I was the kind of person they're used to. This might be too much history. You're going to edit it all out. But there are going to be people, other people in Gen X and older who are going to remember this. And this might be new for some people. There were magazines like basic and uh, all it did, it was the magazine was called basic and it was basic language, the computing language, because that's what you used on your VIC 20 or VIC 64. And there would be hundreds of pages of basic language code programming, not for you to copy paste off the web, but you actually hand entered all of the code from the printed magazine and something about that I would spend, you know, here I am, like, I don't remember 12, 13 with this VIC-20 computer, 
and basic magazine and something in my brain enjoyed entering all the code as you'd enter pages of it just to make the computer thing flash lights <laughs> or to, you know, to make a little dot pong around on the screen or so, something about uh, that whole process appealed to me to this day who knows what it is my brain just worked that way oh that's so funny it's 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 hilarious to me though so I'm a millennial so I grew up in like the y2k um, and the only yeah. coding I ever learned how to do uh, and this is true is because I had a MySpace page when everybody had a yeah. MySpace page. Yeah. And we yeah. all were like, oh, that's how you that's how you make font bold. You just go in the coding section. and you just... Yeah, yeah. No, and again, I, I'm not claiming to be an engineer, but I think I was uh, at all, at all. <laughs> I, I'm not, it, uh, no. But I think that that sort of thing, it absolutely having that sort of childhood, again, where my father was always enamored of emerging tech, whether it was seriously going back even further into the 70s, Texas instrument calculators were some of the first real home computers in a way that you could get, you know? And so I wasn't afraid of technology. I was really interested in technology. So it just things my interest. So one of the things I also wanted to talk about, because you sort of mentioned it as being 100 years ago, so I also remember 100 years ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're sort of in like this Y2K era. And yeah. I was I was a child. I was, um, I'm not going to do the math. I was probably 12. Um, <laughs> we're just going to ballpark that one. Right. We'll <laughs> just say 12. Yeah, we'll say 12. And I remember on New Year's Eve of 1999, everyone this big yeah. panic like you were calling all your friends did you yeah. shut your computer off yeah. because the computers are going to explode if you leave yeah. them on um, there was this like yeah. real fear that that was the end of everything yep. um, and not just that Absolutely. technology would fall apart but that we were sort of going into like is this the maybe end of humanity like I remember falling asleep right. last night and being like god I hope yeah. we wake up on earth tomorrow yeah. morning um, yeah. and technology yeah. was sort of like how we were building and and forcing that fear into that that robots computers wouldn't know right. to change the year right. and of course we woke up and everything was fine and you know we've never looked back but so so do you think this kind of cultural shift this building of this ideology um, with us all of this adaptive technology and that fear sort of built in led to like where we are now which is basically online all of the time you know that's interesting I as a of course I was older than you during the y2k thing and I I know that you read a little bit about me on my webpage where I talk about Y2K because I was working in the financial sector and banking at that time, doing this web work and public communication was my job. So I was the person that handled the journalist phone calls <laughs> saying what's going to happen to everybody. And, and also um, just people who would see the name of the organization or had banking in it and like, I had people just calling me what's going to happen. And so clearly there was this panic and I was oddly calm about it. E even though we had a two person engineering team, the engineers were a little worried. That was their job, but I didn't feel I was the one running around calming people at the organization going, that's not going, I was oddly calm about it, but to lead to your overarching question, my subjective opinion, having been immersed in banking, was that that was clearly something people worried about all their finances. What are the banks going to go into chaos? Mm -hmm. um, is that going to screw up my mortgage, my loans, my business? You know, and as sort of as you were alluding to, then that would be the economic trickle down. So in a lot of ways, the banks were sort of that median that people would reach out to. I was in the thick of it. And <laughs> did it lead to cultural shifts? I, the funny thing is, I feel like you said that we woke up the next morning and people forgot about Y2K. And it was a, a people moved on. Now, that's not to say that there was just a wide acceptance of the web. And it was like, we woke up and went, whoo, let's party, because there were still a lot of trust issues. I mean, that was also around the time where retail was just starting mm -hmm. online and people were very mistrustful still after we lived and survived through Y2K about the idea of giving people your credit card. 
online, right? This was about the time Amazon yeah. was starting online and, and other businesses. And people would say, you're crazy. If you give anybody your credit card online, it's, it's nuts. It's wacko. So I think it took, Y2K was a really significant time leading up to it because of the fear, the mistrust, the unknown. Mm -hmm. But I feel like once we went past it, as a culture, by and large, people moved on. And also that's because the internet wasn't as big a part of their life then. People's whole livelihoods weren't entwined in it. You didn't have a smartphone you picked up. And the first thing you did in the morning was check all your social media, right? right? So your life wasn't is into it. So once it passed and your banking was safe and your finances and the world didn't end, then there were other issues with the web, mm -hmm. right? Like I was talking about that slow cultural trust. You had to build trust. Retailers had to build trust. The whole experience of the web, it really was what people referred to it as the wild west to them that that's really west centric too <laughs> but it was really crazy and so i don't blame people for being mistrustful of the transactions uh, being transactional yeah financially but but it's interesting to me like where we started at y2k and you yeah. know where even yeah. we were after the fact you know where we had this this significant mistrust to where we are now which is like i don't yeah. remember the last time i held cash like i just trust that the banking yeah. systems know what i have in my accounts based on the right. cards my cards are saved in all of my like various accounts i summon strangers cars from my phone you know what i mean like all of yeah. the things that we were taught in the 90s are really like out the window now because our, we're so perpetually online and i think covid was probably the the straw on the camel's back on that one because now absolutely we're so used to it absolutely and uh, another thing obviously covid did a lot to push us back to clearly to remote instead of in person. It shifted a, a lot of things in our life, pushed us online, pushed us to have to trust different mediums as ways to communicate or to try to put our trust into it. We had to be vulnerable to learn new mediums, right? Um, because you are vulnerable every time you learn anything really a new application new software anything uh, a new yeah. way of thinking because as you learn something you can feel stupid and nobody likes to feel stupid really so learning can be uncomfortable i do love to feel stupid <laughs> on microsoft teams every single day at work it's just one of my favorite pastimes no 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 don't say it. yeah teams yeah i'm gonna <laughs> zip it up <laughs> oh do you have insider microsoft no 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 but i'm sure i have friends that are probably work on it. <laughs> so I'm not going to criticize their hard work. We love Microsoft Teams. It's the user that's the problem. No, no, no. no. I would never say that either. It's, you know, it, I, getting back to what you were saying about trust. Trust is, is something that, look, there's two things that come to mind. So first of all, one is the definition of trust, and which is when you believe that you and the other entity are aligned and working towards the same goals, right? So that means you have to be getting some sort of communication feedback, something that feeds into your belief that you are aligned towards achieving the same thing, right? The, uh, so the other thing that comes to mind when you were talking about this is I was also gloriously working at another organization right after that, right before HIPAA was being developed. At the same time, uh, patients were gaining access to medical records online. So electronic medical records are something else we take for granted now, but are incredibly complicated privacy and trust systems for us to use. And, you know, uh, of course, COVID pushed all of that um, forward, even though we had that ability before. Certainly now people are going to forever take for granted that they can do entire doctor's appointments remotely, yeah. right? Entire. And you could just like chat. Right. Like, hey, doc. Right, right. right. Yeah. I mean, we moved therapy online. Yes. And I'll be honest with you. That terrifies me a lot because I feel like 
for therapy purposes, you really need to be removed from your environment in order to do therapy properly. Like there's something fundamentally strange about sitting on your own couch in the environment in which you need therapy from to be like, hey, doc, things are not going well. Well, you know, that's that's interesting. So I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm in a different area of psychology. But I would say to that that you need to go wherever you're comfortable and feel that you can do the talking, <laughs> right? No, that's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, then you need to be in an environment and have the experience where you feel that, that you're getting what you need out of it. So remote might not be the best or even just moving right. to another room or turning <laughs> off the video or, you know, yeah. and closing your eyes, you know, they're all and that's not a these are not toss away comments because these are you what you're talking about is negotiating and navigating a new way of getting a clinical treatment right mm -hmm. so that's really important and what you're saying is you're not quite sure that it's working for you yet it's a process you're still navigating and that's that's that kind of area of tension that I always yeah. work in. That's my little niche right there. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> I, I was thinking I was thinking specifically like during COVID when like everybody was trapped in their house. Yeah. So you were talking to your therapist from the only place that you were like actually yeah. allowed to be to your therapist who was stuck also in their home. Yeah. And like what yeah. a strange breach of that relationship where you're like, I can see inside your house, but we've both been stuck here. So we have nothing else to do. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like I wonder how therapists really also navigated that mental health wise I, I'm sure that that was difficult but we have to remember two therapists are highly trained hopefully if they've said that they're going to do the work remotely that's because they're comfortable doing it that way a lot of therapists have home offices where they can even receive patients and everything so you know one hopes that if they take that uh or if that's part of their their clinical job that they're comfortable doing it yeah i mean you have to trust both the robots and the humans in that scenario <laughs> sort of so brought uh, it all the way yeah well actually i mean therapeutic robots that's a whole other thing too the chat bots yeah. are another we've, thing people turn to it's funny that you mentioned that because we've actually talked uh, on this show about physical therapy with robots and using VR yeah. as a way to help stroke patients recover it was it's a really really fascinating approach to i think using robots in replacement of human interaction. Mm -hmm. And I will let you respond to that if you would like to. Robots as replacement or, so robots are a medium. So they can also certainly be an extension of a clinical psychologist in another place. Somebody could use the robot as a medium uh, to make mm -hmm. somebody feel more comfortable to have them have a focus for someone to talk to. The, that seems like an incredibly overly technical way to do it in these day and age when we have Zoom. So then what you're talking about, it would be having the robot, whatever form that would be an embodied or voice or whatever, uh, which would, uh, those are two very different environments and experiences for the patient. But I, I have said before, when people ask me this kind of question, well, there's two things. So one is robots or artificial intelligence in general, let's say, for therapy. I'm completely against that for the next 100 years. They can perhaps be used as a tool with a clinical psychologist or trained therapist, but they don't have the subjective understanding of the human experience. Right. So that is no. But having said that, there are studies that show that sometimes people with different types of neurodivergence do feel comfortable speaking to actual robots, physical robots, because they feel less pressured to react in what's considered a normalized way. They don't feel judged for um, any of their behaviors or mannerisms. Then there's also like just having a voice interface, like picking up your phone and having a chat bot, which is becoming more common, often for cognitive-based therapy. So for example, getting over a fear or an anxiety, mitigating and anxiety about something. And those have been shown to be really helpful for people. And those are complete AI. And there have been situations, again, where people feel sort of the, 
not being judged by this technical other relieves them of any stigma they might feel attached to seeking treatment. So that's an interesting door. But as far as AI being the lone therapist, I'm going to say hell no for for now. (laughs) I'm with you on that one. I do think it's super fascinating that that neurodivergence approaches approaches it slightly differently or is comforted by interfacing with robots. That's really fascinating. Um, The study, the study we talked about was uh, Dr. Rachel Prophet is working on specifically VR. Mm -hmm. So people who have mobility Mm -hmm. issues who use VR, Mm -hmm. if they can't get to a clinician and and navigating, I think, I think she works specifically with stroke victims getting access back to, to the arms. So that was, it was really fascinating. And I think it reminded me every time I looked at, at more of your stuff, I was so reminded of that sort of very physical interface between humans and robots. And I want to stay on this topic. It's, you know, very clear path through because I want to talk about Elon's purchase of Twitter really quickly. Um, Do you think (laughs) it matters who owns the robots? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Are we going to talk? Do you want me to talk about Elon or the robots? (laughs) Because I have thoughts on both. They're the same thing. Yeah, well, uh, Boy, those are two very different topics. Yes, yeah, so I'll give you an example of who owns, who doesn't matter who owns the robots. So a lot of times when I start talking about data and your data privacy and data collection, because a robot, in order to interact with you, like any AI, it has to do a certain amount of learning about you, whether that's you manually putting things in, like settings and preferences, or just learning things about your preferences and the ways that you interact and the things that you might like. And it can triage that information with other data that the whoever makes this entity that you're interacting with has purchased, right? So they have a really, so that's why when you go, wow, this targeted ad sure nailed what I was just talking about with somebody else. It's not because it read your mind or listened to you. It's because companies are very good at triaging the data. So they see if you just texted a friend, it's not that they read your text. It's looking at all the data about you and your friend and what you might have in common. And then bam, you get this targeted ad and you're like, so sort of like with robots, think about all the data they can potentially collect about you visually, things that you say, you're inviting the technology into your home as we already have what, you know, we have tracking on our phones, right? It can find us really well. Um, We have already let things like digital assistance, like uh, Alexa uh, into our home, which is, you know, people must have a certain amount of trust. Then what is Amazon doing with all that data when it's potentially listening or not listening to what you say, right? So uh, I would say that that factors in, that was a very long way to say So people will have different reactions about companies that make the robots. So for example, let's say a robot is made by a company you've never heard of, and it's a very cute, adorable robot. You might go, oh, if I had the money, I would certainly welcome this adorable robot into my home. If I told you Amazon made the robot and it was still the same cute little robot, would you invite it into your home? Some people would, some people might start to have second thoughts. Some people might go, wow, that's, who cares if it's, I mean, it's great, it's Amazon, it's a trusted company that I know, it might make them trust it more. But I would urge people to think about all the data (laughs) that they're giving away essentially because that data, and it's something we all negotiate. I don't have a robot in my home, but I negotiate that that too. We all do because we need technology really to be productive, mm-hmm. at least in this world, unless you're completely off grid. So we all have to to make these choices. Getting back to your original question, yes. Um, and then, so not just from the user's perspective, who makes it, but of course then... Uh, that's attached to what I'm saying, really think about behind the scenes, you should always question who's making the robot and why. Unfortunately, these are things we don't do, especially when it's presented to us and packaged to us as entertainment or something cute or something helpful. Uh, A lot of times, again, it's that black box of technology 
And also because we're so immersed in technology and new technologies coming all the time, that there is very much, I think, an entertainment aspect to it for a lot of people that don't deeply question. And I don't blame who has the time to deeply question uh, the technology of a smart, every smart appliance you might have in your home. But I would urge people to think about it because the people making these smart appliances absolutely are thinking about it. To give you an insight, you know, if you have a smart refrigerator, right, I guarantee you they are absolutely thinking about how to inventory what's in your refrigerator. Um, and they're going to sell it to you in ways like, oh, we can tell you when you're out of milk, or we can tell you when you need to, and you can order this from your, or the refrigerator will order it for you automatically. But it's also gathering all this data. How much oat milk do you drink? What brand do you prefer? You know, uh, do you have baby food in there? Do you have, you know, all of these things so we can infer about your life? And that sounds creepy. And it is, <laughs> unfortunately. So there's a lot going on in the world right now. But these are things to think about how much of your data do you want to give away for convenience? And are you comfortable exchanging for convenience? And I, I think to your point too, they do package it yes. as like, this is for your convenience. Yes. But I think on, on the flip side too, what capitalism tends to do there yeah. is if they can streamline everything, yeah. then all you have to worry about is your productivity, right? So if you're working a nine to five and everything else is done for you, your refrigerator's ordering all your food, your cat litter box cleans itself, the doors open and close, the lights you know turn on and off you have to have a five to nine, right? Then to become stressed on how much more can you produce? How much more can you give back to a society that does everything for you so that we can keep making and consuming and developing technology and robots to put back in your home that you need to pay to afford? Right. Really? It, it, and it, there's, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up because this brings up all of the socioeconomic uh, right. garbage that comes with this. Not just this, the whole capitalist purchase, you know, make products and purchase the products and, and that whole circle thing. And that encouraging us to work jobs to keep purchasing things <laughs> that are supposed yeah. to make our lives easier. So, yeah. so, I mean, that gets to the, there's a difference between choosing, like I can choose not to have a voice interface assistant in my home like Alexa because it's something I don't need and I don't want personally. Let's say that those are my choices. But that's because I have that socioeconomic privilege that I can choose to do that or not, right? Um, there are times where technology is great. I don't mean this to sound like I, this is me versus technology, because that's really not what my job or I see my job is about. I see my job is for, uh, if anything, I'm advocating for the users. And so technology, as we've hinted at, can be really beneficial in therapeutic uses for people with disabilities. Anybody who has any kind of challenge, it can bring great convenience to your life. But only if you can afford it. Uh, so uh, that sort of brings me to, if we wanted to talk about Meta and the whole idea of, I think one of the problems with the whole theory of the metaverse was, in my opinion, was that Mark Zuckerberg had planned for this. I think he said he wanted to aim towards 2030 for having something like a more tangible, widely accepted what he pictured more as a metaverse and everything up till that point was sort of development. But they really also banked on people adopting expensive headsets. I mean, besides the fact of wearing a headset and the and and he and trying to also unlike Second Life and some of the also, you know, massive multiplayer online environments, you know, all of these other things where people could also connect to each other lacked some of that socioeconomic divide that just by you needed certain, not just an understanding of the technology itself, but you had to 
buy it and have access to it. And you think of how that's not just you know, people with privilege who want to play in the metaverse. This could become, if you're going to sell this as they tried to as something that can help people with education or something like that, that's going to turn into schools that can afford it, parents that can afford this at home, those that can't. And that, and I mean, whatever form that headset takes, whether it turns into glasses, access to the metaverse, whatever, one of those big things that I think they didn't count on was the socio and the interest in it in general. There, you know, there are a lot of issues, but the socioeconomic one is one that I don't think we discuss enough in technology. And there is still a great divide, especially with these emerging technologies. And I think one of the things that I was struck most by it's like the people that can afford those kind of technologies don't really have other concerns right yeah. so they can they can go out and do those things because they have the cash and the capital and the ability to do those things so they can go out in real life and do some yeah. of those things yeah. they're not going to be the people that need to like either people who have chronic illnesses or yeah. people who are disabled like those people who would actually use those technologies aren't going to be in the same tax bracket as people who can afford them not typically um, and, and, right i mean you don't want to make right. sweeping right, right. And, you know but but yeah. yeah so there i mean uh, regard no but exactly i'm not negating what you're saying i totally that's absolutely true you know what and so you can't he bet on something that he himself i believe said was really going to come to uh a different, a completely different, more integrated experience, whatever he thought that was going to look like, glasses, contact lenses, eye implants, who knows, you know, who knows what they thought it was going to be eventually uh, in 10 years or 20 years. But in the meantime, just the the money thing. And again, that's yeah. that we saw that with early internet with computers, right? And then we saw that with smartphones. And we're going to see that with every emerging technology. You see that, you know, that's actually a big issue with self-driving cars as well. Yeah. You know, they're really designed in many ways to be on the road with other self-driving cars. And we're all sort of unfortunately now living in the beta experiment where they have self-driving vehicles, right? Or have a pretty high ability to be autonomous on the road with the rest of us. I say the rest of us, cause I'm not driving a, an autonomous vehicle or not driving it. If you know, I don't know what that is. The, but you know, when it started, when people start talking about autonomous vehicles, some of the ways they were selling it was this can help people with chronic illness. This can help people who have mobility issues. This will be uh, life-saving for people who cannot afford cars, right? We're going to have all these shared vehicle services and this utopian thing. But in the meantime, there's going to be a, what, a, you know, 50 or hundred years of people who can only spend a lot of money on a car that has very different associations with it than what they were talking about in the utopian ideals. Everybody was trying to get money and get traction in the market. And, and one of those things, we talked a little bit about the metaverse to jump back just slightly. One of the things that scared me at first about the metaverse yeah. is it starts to feel very much like in, in this vein of of the rich living in entirely mm -hmm. different existence than the rest of us, right? And what I always worry about with those kinds of things is that, is that they will start to sell the afterlife. Like as soon as we could figure out some kind of way to upload a human consciousness into something that is not biologically going to break down, those people will be immortal. The people that can afford it will be will achieve some kind of immortality in whatever form it is. Um, and, the, and the rest of us will have to continue on be biological. I always find these these things so interesting because the people who often want to be immortal are the ones that I least want to remember after they're gone. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I find yes. maybe that should be a quote of mine somewhere. But it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I think about it. I don't mean to follow it immediately with this, but, you know, all right. So here, I'll use these examples. We have all seen some of these with holograms, right, of deceased pop singers or mm -hmm. pop stars, yes. which I personally find fairly disturbing. But people are going to have very subjective experiences. Like if I remember growing up, 
listening to, let's say, Whitney Houston, and I remember having that parasocial relationship, watching her become a great pop star as a teenager, barely in early 20s, and soaring into heights and all of her emotional ups and downs, and then her horrible, you know, unexpected death, and then now she's a hologram. I find it disturbing. Somebody who yes. is much younger, doesn't have those associations, might go, wow, that is the coolest technology. I want that technology. We saw that with the Kardashians. Didn't Kanye essentially buy um, a Robert Kardashian hologram for Kim uh, as a birthday present or something? So that was really a socioeconomic look. We can bring your father back. We can piece them together with AI and, and everything else. Uh, as a legacy, I mean, you can't go into this without very personal opinions on this. I, many of us want to make a mark in the world and have some sort of legacy. Sometimes that can drive people that can be a driving force into having children, into doing the work that you do, into documenting things and, and creating your own artifacts with meaning, right? Photographs. Um, uh, for me, it'll be in many ways, I hope, the work that I've left behind, whether that's books or publications, things like that. Uh, and I find the idea of trying to replicate somebody who's been gone, clearly it's ethically complicated. I think in the end, if people really want to truly interact with it, there is that Black Mirror episode. That's what I'm thinking. I think that there are there's a spectrum of what's going to happen. This is how I'm going to call it. I, I'm going to call it right now. I think the haves, the people that have money, are going to have ranges of things that they can buy to bring people back, so to speak. One might be a hologram. You know, it might be a web-based message. It might be AR, you know, different ways to bring parts of people or something up to something eventually, you know, 50, 100 years from now, pretty fully functional, like you might see on Black Mirror, like a full-on robot that can mimic to a certain degree mm -hmm. what somebody was. But I'll go back to some things I've said in my TED talk about robotness versus humanness, right? I think that I am, I'm not gonna make a judgment on things like the holograms and things that can give you little pieces of who somebody was because they're new artifacts. I look at photos of people and pets and and so on that are gone now and that's meaningful to me so you know I, I we read books by people who are gone letters from people you know emails so if holograms become the new thing or but what i get concerned about those are little pieces artifacts of memory but i get concerned about when we talk about replicating the entire person to go on and on and on and essentially right. live in some ways, mimicking, like you were saying, something that's organic. And I have a I struggle with seeing a scenario where that ends well for the human. Yeah. I think that yeah. there might be therapeutic, maybe, cases for it if the person was working with an actual, you know. Again, a, this was in collaboration with a therapist, but I think to just like, you know, like in the case of Black Mirror, just send someone in a box, a robot and say, here <laughs> is a replication of this dead person or animal or whatever it is that meant something to you. Our brains are not prepared for that and um, those sorts of interactions. I don't think right, that, that right. would end well. And I'm, I'm actually really glad we got to this point because I, I know that everybody that listens to the show is very, very tired of me bringing it back to the sphere of death because that's where I'm interested. And my last several interviews have been death focused. But I, I do want to talk about this because I feel like one of the problems that we're having in modern society, and, and this is true mm -hmm. of everybody on every class mm -hmm. in the West, mm -hmm. is that we don't actually face death with any finality right. at all. We don't understand it. Right. We don't interact with it. Our dead people die in hospitals. They go immediately yeah. to a mortuary. Yeah. We see them again looking like they're sleeping and then they go away. And we're not actually grieving healthy. We're not actually dealing with death healthy. And the more we rely on technology to provide 
what grief is supposed to do, the less likely we will actually have this interface of what we decide is, you know, the human concept of death, this humanity piece that we're starting to miss. That's interesting because you you said that through a very specific lens of of what I would say a very Western and sort of uh, a Christian roots of how to handle and modern Christian roots. What I'm saying by that is other religions handle death, even in a hospital setting, differently than like what you described and might have rules, for example, about when someone's buried, how they're buried, how you see them mourning periods. So there are traditions that people can adhere to already to make their peace in whatever way they want with the situations. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think we're both getting to the same point, but psychologically drawing out and denying the finality of something that is part of organic life, I'm not sure really behooves the people that are left behind um, to get on with their lives. Uh, Like I said, I think that much like a photograph is today, you can have a meaningful touchstone. There's nothing wrong with that in whatever technology form that takes. I cherish, I have somewhere real to real tape old tape recordings of my grandmother's voice. And, you know, I I cherish those. So it's, I understand wanting that. What I personally don't understand, frankly, is the idea of people who want to insert themselves and purposefully insert that we have to talk about consent now really briefly and me. You know, there are people, unfortunately, like we'll talk about pop stars. I won't pick on a particular one, but they're gone and they were gone way before this technology came to be what it is today. So their estates had to consent to, you can reinvent this person, right? So people are going to have to start thinking about their wills and say, you know, we already saw that with social media and Facebook like 10 years ago. People were starting to say, what's going to happen to my social media after I'm gone? How do you know what? You're going to have to start thinking about consent, about technology if there is wider acceptance and access to tools like this, do you want to be resurrected as a robot? You know, I personally, not that I can imagine why anyone would want to resurrect me as some kind of animatronic thing, but I would put a non-consent, you know, if I had a choice, I would say no right now. Yeah. Because of what I know about the limitations of AI and the potential dangers of people then interacting with a a false me, which is funny that I actually even use that term because that goes back to the film theory nerd, the movie Metropolis, the very early uh, movie with the, I'm sure you've seen in black and white, the male creator creates this female robot that gains autonomy and, uh, the robot's name, he, he's actually, without consent, creates a robot, a female replica of a woman he has a crush on. And her name's Maria, and the robot's name is False Maria. So I was just using that film thing when I said, like, a false version of me. So isn't that yeah. interesting how it sort of goes back to that? It's all... We came full circle on a call. We came back. full circle, Yeah. We did. And it, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, though, because lately I've been thinking a lot about this piece of it, this yeah. kind of interaction with what happens to our, our social medias, what happened to our, our voice after death. Because um, I'm not sure you saw, but Anthony Bourdain had a documentary come yes. out recently. Yes. And they took parts of his voice that he had recorded yeah. over his whole career and they had him read some of his like posthumous letters and yeah. things. And he sort of narrates the documentary. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not sure he would be cool with this. I didn't know him personally. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be cool with it just like for the record. But what an interesting way to force somebody to talk about their experiences without their consent or agency to do so. That is an interesting one, too. It's hard to guess uh, what Anthony Bourdain, I didn't know him personally either. But I think in many ways, if you were a fan of his, if you watched his shows, if you read any of his books, he certainly portrayed himself as a rebel 
in many ways mm. and as sort of old school also and it's hard to imagine that he would consent to it on the other hand he very much liked sharing his narrative and parts of himself. And so maybe he would have embraced it as a new technology, but we don't know because he did not give consent. And, you know, that's uh, the consent thing has already come up, you know, in robots and AI when people, for example, somebody, uh, a male creator, I forget what country it was in, made a robot version of Scarlett Johansson. Now I would imagine it looks a lot like her, but again, it was because he claimed he uh, had the hots for her. So he spent his time building a rope. Now, you know, and I'm, I, that's a whole other topic about sex robots and loving robots. And that's a whole other thing. And I'm not, that's a whole other topic. That's not the issue. The issue is the consent for me. And, right. and uh, clearly, uh, and I think most of us, many of us, but I think especially women, because, or anybody in a marginalized group, or because of the way we are forced to interact with the world and protect ourselves in certain situations, you find yourself especially vulnerable to things like that, right? right. Um, there's a power imbalance. And um, so it's especially, it's very creepy. Yes. That part yes. of it is yes. creepy. The consent part. If he had asked her and her and her people had said, okay, I would have admired his work and said, that's great animatronics, right? But the non-consent part. But is it, you know, is it fundamentally different than fan art in a way? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, and, and so sort of... that's a good question. Is it different than fan art and fanfic? Because I was just talking about photographs being sort of an artifact that I could say that holograms could potentially be a, a thing for. But I think that when he is openly claiming he's making robots that look like public figures who make their money off their image. And this is something that fanfic can run into as well, right? Um, there's a point where, I, I'm not a lawyer, but there's got to be a point where you're using their image in a way that's not legal and going to take away from their brand, I imagine. Right. And a lot of fanfic at this point is still written and doesn't involve imagery, though we do see faked porn images and you know faked porn videos and but that's a whole that's in some ways how do I put this you know porn is like a bazillion dollar business around the world and if somebody really wants to sue people in porn for image things a lot of times people who work in the sex industry are the the leaders in technology in finding new technologies and utilizing them in ways so they can conduct their business in a safer way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and do transactions. And I, I'm not sure where I was going with this, except I was going to say that they're a very powerful industry. And so when this guy or other people start saying, I'm making an image of this person for the purpose of sexualization, I think you're going to find, and we've already seen some real sex workers around the world saying, we don't want robots to be able to do that because it infringes on our work. And that actually brings up all kinds of interesting, I mean, it's just a hornet's nest. We're in the middle yeah. of technologies that are entering our everyday lives and we're still navigating and negotiating all of the ethics and how we're supposed to interact with them and i just want people to stay safe physically <laughs> emotionally privacy data yes you know and enjoy and enjoy the technologies in safe ways because they can right. be fun and they can be uh, uh, they can help us all immeasurably. I want to end on this because I think we've we've wandered into the negative territory of robots and 
there are, you know, faults in the system. But in in your TED Talk, you talk a little bit about how you sort of look at it anthropologically and how robots sort of give us an understanding of what makes us human, what sets us apart from from robots and how understanding where we intersect with robots, where I think you use war as a case study, where we are different, where we're the same, help us understand what makes us as people human. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that just to, to wrap us out on something yeah. maybe positive? Yeah. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I'm trying to think about how to put this. So there, of course, there are all different kinds of robots. When we even just say the word robot, it's interesting to me what comes to mind for a lot of people. Of course, there's industry robots, there's NASA, Mars, exploratory robots. There's all kinds of, you know, robots on factory lines. But often when you say the word robot, what comes to mind is something human-like or animal-like, often something that's going to interact with you in a way that, or communicate with you in a way that's meant for you to understand. Look at R2-D2, right? It's Star Wars. I love science fiction as are great ways to show examples of how things can interact with you. R2-D2 doesn't talk, right? Clicks and whistles and turning the head, but you feel like by the cadence of those chirps and everything that you yeah. understand it. And I think R2-D2 in many ways is also a great example. We think as the cute sort of harmless, helpful friend robot. In the TED talk, I talked about embodiment a fair amount because it is how we know the world in many ways through our bodies, through what we can and what we can't do. Robots, of course, even if they were built to look exactly like us, have different capabilities and limitations, right? It could uh, be getting all kinds of information from other AI sources while it's talking to you. It can have all kinds of vision and strength capabilities that you'll never be able to realize, right? Or at least probably not in this lifetime. And that's why you would want it in your home because to collaborate and cooperate with because it supposedly has these abilities. So it knows the world in a different way, yet in many times we're creating these robots to resemble humans. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is because we assume that people will enjoy interacting with human-like things, especially if we make them look non-threatening, if we make them smaller than us, if we make them certain colors even, right? Uh, That has been a, a big historical trend if you look at the color of what most robots have been. Things that designers are making and developers are making choices about, yet uh, there are some good reasons to make robots appear human or animal-like, and that is everything that we have built in the world is generally to work around us and our human-like bodies. Unfortunately, things are often built for a certain able-bodied type of person, but you think about your home, if you didn't have a robot that had two human-like hands or the ability to move around, it's not going to be very helpful to you in the home. Uh, Yet it has all of these different abilities than you. So I think it's easy to get sort of lulled into this idea that this technology is what it appears to be on the surface, which is human-like. But we have to remember that it's It knows the world in a different way and it can become meaningful to you in a pet-like way. Robots might become meaningful to you in a companionship way, or they might mean nothing to you and be a tool. You could categorize them differently. There's nothing wrong with any of those ways of interacting with a robot, but you could say ultimately the difference, uh, I mean, besides the obvious ones uh, between being human and and robots, no matter how advanced they get or people think of them as sentient or believe them to be sentient. And that is, you know, we have a sense of um, time because we only have a certain amount of time on this planet and robots don't have that same sense of self. So I'm not sure that's the positive note you wanted to end on, but I think it's an interesting one. And 
I think it also harkens back to different parts of our conversation where we talk about how things get sold to us mm -hmm. um, in certain non-threatening ways that are going to be a convenience and help us. And that they may very well be conveniences and charming and entertaining and all of these things. Uh, but we also have to keep in mind that they are very much technologies and they are the product of the decision makers behind them. And often there are technologies that, especially smart ones, that can be updated and change and terms of service can change and all of those things. So people are going to either be forced into learning more about the technologies they let into their home or just sort of embrace it as the new New, you know, I mean, there's a spectrum in between, but that's where we're going, I guess. That was my very long answer. It was a good one. I actually I actually love right where we ended because that's where I end most of my Tomorrow Today interviews is you're going to die someday. That makes <laughs> you different than robots. <laughs> but, you know, it's again, that that comes down to sort of like um, your own personal beliefs. Right there. I, that actually not to be depressing, but, you know, I do you talk about it in my TED talk, you know, as humans, we don't may not think about it every minute, but we're fragile. You know, yes. robots have their own fragility and their own weaknesses, but are also replaceable and we're unique. And sometimes I, I feel maybe it's just me because I work in the business, but it's hard to remember the value of the flaws in each other. And it's not about technology replacing people. I think it should be about technology adding to our experiences as humans. Mm -hmm. That's what I would like to see. Yeah, I agree. I would like to see us sort of re-weaponize our fear about a biological ending yeah. and use that to say, okay, fine, we only get 80 years, 100 yeah. years. Let's make it the best 80 to 100 years or however long you get because yeah. you don't know. Yeah. And and use robots in your life to make those years matter more to you. Absolutely. To the full experience. Absolutely. And I think that's their utility, in my opinion. Yeah. That's one of their utilities. I mean, you know, that's very broad. We might have different robots for different things and everything. But yes, I think that learning to live with robots means understanding their place in your life, whatever that is, and understanding that uh, they can have meaning, but they're robots and they don't replace people. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Carpenter. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a really fun talk. Thank you, Nick.